0: When it comes to the spiritual discipline of evangelism, you might like to know that there are countless courses, there's a plethora of programs which are all designed to help believers to become effective evangelists. For example, there are many seminaries that offer courses on Christian evangelism like Biola or Dallas Theological or Liberty University. There are also many websites that offer free evangelism classes like the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, which offers a free online class called Simply Sharing Jesus. There's also Eventel Evangelistic Association, which provides in-depth seminars and innovative evangelism resources. There are also popular programs like D. James Kennedy's Evangelism Explosion, which was first introduced back in the early 70s. Since then, evangelism explosion has become the best known and most widely used evangelistic training curriculum in church history. Seeing how this evangelistic training curriculum has been used by more than 20,000 churches worldwide, there are even those who insist that this course is crucial for becoming an effective evangelist. Then there are those who will say, no, 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 it's the way of the program. You got you to gotta go with the way of the program, which was introduced by Ray Comfort back in 2002. And this program provides us with uh, an effective way to evangelize unbelievers within our sphere of influence. And as we consider all of these courses and all of these programs, listen, this is just a scratch of the surface of all the resources that can help Christians become effective evangelists. And as we consider all of these resources available to Christians, it's truly sad to say that there's a growing trend within the 21st century church, which is actually leading many to believe that evangelistic endeavors are no longer an acceptable way for Christians to interact with unbelievers. As a matter of fact, we can look at a poll from 2018, which reveals that 47%, that's Almost half of the millennials in the church, they believe that it's wrong to proselytize a person from another faith. Consider that for a moment. Almost half of the millennials in the church today think that it's wrong to proselytize a person from another faith. The same aversion to evangelism is shared by 27% of Gen Xers, It's shared by 19% of boomers and 20% of those considered elders. Now, with that being the case, you know, as we consider this increasing trend that is steering Christians away from evangelistic endeavors, it's my hope that our study today will help us to see that the Lord Jesus is actually calling every Christian to become an effective evangelist. Now, with this as the goal, we're going to spend our time this morning considering the, uh, considering the instructions that the Lord Jesus presented just before ascending into heaven. As we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that effective evangelism is based on scriptural proof. Secondly, we'll see that effective evangelism is based on a sacrificial plan. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that effective evangelism is based on spiritual power. Well, with this as the outline, let's let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 24. It's here in the 24th chapter of Luke's gospel account where we find Jesus, he's helping his disciples to become believers who are effective evangelists. And as you're making your way there to Luke 24, well, I just want to take a moment to uh, to put our text back into its context. It'll help us to remember that we've actually spent the last three weeks considering the way that our risen redeemer, Jesus, he revealed himself as being alive from the dead With many infallible proofs. It's important for us to remember that the Lord Jesus actually spent 40 days with his disciples. He spent 40 days with his disciples from the day of his resurrection until the day when he ascended into heaven. And during that time, he was helping them to understand how to become effective evangelists. And with this as our focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 24 you would look with me there beginning at verse 44. Here Jesus says to his disciples, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And here in these verses we find the Lord Jesus, He's helping His disciples to understand that He was calling them to become His witnesses. Yeah, He was calling them to become His witnesses. And I guess uh, you could say that these were the first Jehovah's Witnesses. But, but just to be clear, He wasn't calling them to go pass out pamphlets, you know, printed by Kingdom Hall. No, no, they weren't those kinds of Jehovah's Witnesses. No, they were just witnesses for Jehovah. And he was presenting his apostles with the instructions that they needed so that they could go and become his witnesses by accomplishing the great commission, which always begins with evangelism. In order to accomplish the great commission, we must evangelize those who are lost. And with this as the goal, I want to consider how the Lord began by refocusing their attention on the Bible so that they could become effective evangelists. With that, I want to back up and begin reading again there at verse 44. Here again, Christ Jesus declares, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Here in these verses, we find the Lord opening up their understanding so that they could comprehend and understand the Scriptures. Now for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word Scriptures, it's translated from the Greek word graphe, which uh, was in this context is being used in reference to the writings that we find in the books of the law, the first five books written by Moses, as well as the prophets, and then also the Psalms. This, of course, includes the 39 books of the Old Testament, which, which we now refer to the Old Testament, but, but Jesus didn't refer to it as the Old Testament. The Old Testament, this wasn't a term that was used until after the New Testament was written and canonized. And so when the Lord Jesus refers to the Old Testament, he calls it the Scriptures. Or he elaborates on that by calling it the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Now, as we consider these three specific sections of the Hebrew scriptures, we must not fail to notice all of the religious writings that Jesus did not mention when he referred to the scriptures. You know, there were more religious writings uh, in the world at that point in time uh, that Jesus was not referring to. He did not refer to the Epic of Gilgamesh. He did not refer to the Bhagavad Gita. He did not refer to the Vedas. He did not refer to the Upanishads. Uh, Jesus didn't refer to any of those religious writings, though they were available on the planet at that point in time. He he didn't refer to any of those scriptures uh, as being scriptures. When he refers to the scriptures, he's specifically talking about the spirit-inspired word of God, which at that point in time was found in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And not only did Jesus refer to these three sections of the Old Testament as the scriptures, but then he provides us with the proof that we need, which actually proves the divine inspiration of the Hebrew scriptures. And to prove my point, let's take another look here at Luke 24. I want to draw your attention back to verse 44. Here the Lord Jesus declares, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets, and the psalms concerning me. Now, Jesus here is talking about the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And just to be clear, the word fulfilled, which is found there in the middle of verse 44, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context was used in reference to the prophecies, which were perfectly completed, fulfilled, perfectly completed by Christ Jesus. In other words, our Messiah not only opened the minds of his disciples so that they could comprehend the scriptures, but he was also helping them to see how he accomplished all of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of our Redeemer. Now, you might not know this, but the Old Testament actually contains more than 300 prophecies about the Messiah. If you read through the Old Testament you'll come across more than 300 prophecies that point to this promised Messiah. For example, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet Isaiah points to a day when the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, just to be clear about this, you should know that the title Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. And so the title of this son, born of a virgin, is God with us. And and what this means is that the prophet Isaiah was informing us that the Messiah would not only be born of a virgin, therefore a supernatural birth, but he would also be the physical incarnation of almighty God. And so, listen, when Christ Jesus said that he fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies, he's telling us that he fulfilled this one that he is Emmanuel, God with us, born of a virgin. I should also point out that it's in the 22nd Psalm where King David prophetically describes the death of the Messiah by declaring this. He says, for for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing... They cast lots. Here in these verses we find King David describing the way that the Messiah would die with pierced hands and feet. Now it's interesting to note that this prophecy was actually written nearly 1,000 years before death by crucifixion was even invented. So so 1,000 years before crucifixion was invented, David tells us that the Messiah would die having his hands and his feet pierced. And we know from both biblical and extra biblical sources that our Savior died in exactly this way. He died on a Roman cross with hands and feet pierced as Roman soldiers divided his garments through the casting of lots. Prophecy fulfilled. Oh, and let's not forget about the prophecy that we find in the 16th Psalm where King David declares, you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. From this, we can see that David was not only certain that he would rise from the grave, but he also rejoiced in knowing that the body of the Holy One, our Messiah, would not experience any corruption in the grave or in Sheol. And then later on, it's in Acts chapter two, where Peter actually quotes this prophecy. He quotes this prophecy from King David and then goes on to inform us that David foresaw this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. So yeah, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy as well. And not only that, but Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies that point to the first advent of our Savior. Now, in order to understand how these prophecies provide us with scriptural proof, it'll help you to understand that many of the Messianic prophecies that we find in the Old Testament can be turned into a mathematical probability. Uh, For example, you know, it's in Genesis chapter 49. There we learn that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. I'll remind you there were 12 tribes of Judah. And so this prophecy that points to the Messiah coming from Judah, uh, well, it, it carries a, a chance of one in, in 12. There's one chance in 12 that Jesus would be born of this tribe, right? And, and, and with this principle in mind, I want to consider the research of a mathematician named Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner examined eight specific Old Testament prophecies that point to the promised Messiah. And after applying the law of compound probability to those eight specific prophecies, this famous mathematician concluded that the probability of one man fulfilling those eight specific prophecies, it was one chance in 10 to the 17th power. Now now grasp that for a moment. Jesus had one chance in 10 to the 17th power to fulfill those eight uh, prophecies. And and then to put this probability into perspective, Peter Stoner goes on to inform us that this would be equivalent to a blindfolded person picking the correct marked silver dollar from a pile of silver dollars that cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Imagine that for a moment, silver dollars two feet deep across the state of Texas and you're blindfolded, you have one chance to pick the correct coin. That's equivalent to the probability of one chance in 10 to the 17th power. And that's what Jesus did when he fulfilled those eight prophecies. Peter Stoner also applied the same approach to 48 Old Testament prophecies and concluded that the probability of one man fulfilling all 48 prophecies is equivalent to one chance in 10 to the 157th power. Now, to put that into perspective, Stoner compares this number to a ball of uh, electrons uh, which is larger than the known universe. And now imagine a blindfolded person choosing the correct electron on the very first pick. Now, listen, as impossible as this probability actually is, that's what Jesus did. Jesus accomplished all 48 of those prophecies, and, and as he did he accomplished this probability. And listen, Jesus didn't just fulfill 48, but Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies that point to the first advent of our Savior. With all that being the case, I like the uh, the way that Peter Stoner sums up this data. It's in his book, Science Speaks, where he declares this, and I quote, to the extent then that we know this blindfolded man cannot pick out the marked electron we know that the Bible is inspired. This is not merely evidence. It is proof of the Bible's inspiration by God. Proof so definite that the universe is not large enough to hold the evidence. Incredible. When Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies that point to the promised Messiah, he not only proved that he is the only begotten son, but he simultaneously proved that the Old Testament scriptures are the divinely inspired word of God. And as we consider this conclusion, we can see then that the Christian who wants to become an effective evangelist, we would do well to present this scriptural proof as we present the gospel message of Jesus Christ. When we share our faith in Jesus Christ and and when we present the gospel message to people, we would do well to help them to see the prophetic proof that that shows that the scriptures must be divinely inspired, and that Jesus must be a supernatural being to pull off, you know, such a probability. This was precisely the point that the apostle Peter uh, was uh, making. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it's here where he declares, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Here in these verses, we find the apostle Peter assuring his audience that the earthly ministry of Christ Jesus, everything that they witnessed through the time that Jesus uh, you know, accomplished his ministry here on earth, all of it confirmed the prophetic word of God. And the reason why is because the Lord Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies one by one. The Lord Jesus has confirmed the divine inspiration of the scriptures by fulfilling all of the messianic prophecies that point to the first advent of our Savior. And it's for this reason that the effective evangelists will be quick to present this scriptural proof. When we go out and share our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would do well to to help people to see How the fulfillment of prophecy proves both the Bible being divinely inspired and Jesus Christ being the son of God. And while it's true that effective evangelism is based on presenting this scriptural proof, well, it's also true that effective evangelism is also based on presenting the the Lord's sacrificial plan. And to explain what I mean by this, let's take a closer look at the instructions that the Lord Jesus presented to his disciples here in the final chapter of this gospel account. If you would, let's turn our attention back to Luke chapter 24. I want to back up and begin reading once again there at verse 46. Here Jesus declares, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his disciples to understand that it was absolutely necessary for him to suffer, to die, and then to rise from the dead. And just to be clear, you know, as we consider the the concept of of, of all this being necessary, it'll help you to know that the word necessary uh, found here in these verses, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context is used in reference to the counsel and the decrees of God by which sinners could be saved through the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior. So, so th- that which is necessary is according to the decrees and the counsel of God. And so God is the one who decreed that these things are necessary for the salvation of sinners. More simply put, Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection were all necessary steps for securing our salvation. And the reason why is because God simply can't just overlook sins. You know, we talk a lot about the forgiveness of sins, but please understand that God must punish every single sin because he's a just judge. He must punish every single sin. He can't just say, oh, you didn't mean it. You know, yeah, okay, you sinned. We'll just forget about it. He can't do that. He has to punish every single sin. And the way that he solves this problem that we have is by sending his only begotten son to live a sinless life, to die for our sins on the cross, and then rise from the grave showing that it was was an acceptable sacrifice. All of these things were necessary so that sinners could be saved. With all that being the case, Jesus took the time to explain these things so that his disciples might realize what was necessary for our salvation. And in this way, he was helping them to become effective evangelists. And with this as the goal, the Lord Jesus encouraged them to go out and present this information by doing what? By preaching. By preaching the repentance and remission of sins to the people in every nation beginning there in Jerusalem. Now, just to be clear about this, that word preached, which is found there in the middle of verse 47, it's translated from a Greek word, which was used of those who would herald, uh, they would herald the news. These heralds would go out and publicly proclaim the information that they were sent to share. And in the context of the Christian faith, Christians have been called to become the heralds Of this good news. uh, We've been called to publicly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's right. In order for us to become effective evangelists, we must be willing to preach. We must be willing to preach the message that we've been given. And with this as the goal, it's important for us to understand that preaching includes clear communication. Sadly, there are those here in this modern age who have bought into the belief that a person can preach the gospel with their actions alone. They, they've bought into this idea that, well, if I just live a good life in front of people, then they'll, be, they'll, they'll believe in Mormonism, right? I, well, hold on a second. If you live a good life in front of people, what does that communicate to them? What, what does that prove to them? Well, it proves that you're a pretty decent person. But what else? So what, what else does that communicate to them? Listen, when it comes to the gospel message, it's a, it's a message that must be preached, and it's for this reason that we ought to reject this concept that is commonly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, and, you know, this quote is, uh, it typically goes something like this, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. This is commonly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and I don't know if he said it or not, but the, uh, the concept is false. The reason I say this is because in order to preach the gospel at all times, you must use words because that's what the word preach means. You can't preach the gospel without words. You must use words, so use your words. Go ahead, do it. Preach the gospel. Christian, listen, the only way that we can become an effective evangelist is by clearly communicating the gospel of grace and why, uh, while we should most certainly live a good life in front of people, listen, I know a lot of great Mormons. I know a lot of great Catholics. I know a lot of great Muslims. I, I know a lot of great people who live wonderful lives and, and, and do the right thing. Does that prove their belief system too? So yeah, let's live a good life. Let's be good people. But let's preach the gospel with clear communication so that people understand why we're living the life that we're living. Now, in order to more fully grasp this message, we should consider the way that Paul defined this concept of preaching the gospel. Uh, And he explains it here in his letter to the Christians in Corinth. So hold your place here in the gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as you make your way to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to point out that when we talk about preaching the gospel, you should know that the word gospel might be better rendered good news. When we refer to the gospel, we're talking about the good news. It's the good news by which sinners can be saved. And with that definition in mind, let's consider what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you would look with me there, we'll begin reading at verse one. Here, Paul declares, brethren, I declare to you, The gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures and that he was buried And that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that the gospel message that he preached to them, well, it was focused on the good news of our Savior's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And not only that, but we should also notice that Paul is appealing to the Old Testament scriptures. He he prophetically reveals the necessity of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection by appealing to the scriptures. In verse 3 again, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. If you open up that envelope, what you discover are all of the Old Testament prophecies that point to the death of the Messiah, And in verse four, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, he was presenting them with all of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to the resurrection of our Redeemer. And in light of his his example, we have to understand that the effective evangelist will proclaim this gospel message by taking people to the Old Testament scriptures and helping them to see that the good news was revealed in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. And in this way, will help unbelievers to understand our Savior's sacrificial plan. The sacrificial plan by which we can be saved. To further grasp my point, let's take another look there at verse 47. It's back in Luke chapter 24. Let's make our way back to Luke chapter 24. I want to focus your attention There at verse 47, here the Lord Jesus instructs his disciples by informing them that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, as we consider this encouragement to preach repentance and remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, We should take a moment to realize that when it comes to the word repentance, there does seem to be some level of confusion amongst Christians about the meaning of the original Greek word. A lot of people think that the original Greek word that's rendered repentance speaks of the uh, ceasing of sins. They tend to attribute repentance to a person that stops sinning. And if that's the case then the message of repentance and remission of sins for salvation would be a works-based salvation. You would have to stop sinning in order to get saved. Who's going to make it? I'm not. No one will. No, the repentance and remission of sins is not based on the idea that you have to stop sinning in order to get saved. No, the word repentance simply means change of mind. That's what the original Greek means. Speaks of the person who changes their mind, and in the context of evangelism, repentance refers to those who change their mind as they finally realize that they can't work their way into heaven. They have to repent of the dead works that lead them to think that they can somehow, by their own good works, earn their way into the grace of God. It'll never happen. Repentance is the change of mind that leads the sinner to realize that Jesus is the only way that we can be saved. That the finished work of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary sacrifice there on the cross is the only way that we can be saved. From this, we see then that the effective of evangelists will encourage unbelievers to change their mind about who's going to get them into heaven. Not only that, but we've also been called to proclaim the remission of sins. And just to be clear, that word remission found there in verse 47 Well, it's translated from a Greek word which refers to the free gift of grace by which sinners are pardoned from the penalty and the punishment that we deserve for the sins that we've committed. In other words, the effective evangelist will encourage unbelievers to not only change their mind about Jesus Christ, but they'll help them to also understand that those who trust in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus will then receive the free gift of grace by which sinners are then pardoned from the penalty and the punishment that we deserve. Now, as we consider this good news that every Christian has been called to go out and preach, I'm sure we all realize that there will be those unbelievers who will challenge the gospel message that we're presenting. Some will oppose us by requiring us to provide them with a rational argument for why we believe in the veracity of the Bible. Others will ask us to present them with the proof that Jesus actually rose up from the grave then there are those who will dismiss our beliefs by insisting that, you know, Jesus can't be the only way that there's got to be other ways to heaven. And knowing that our evangelistic endeavors are going to be challenged, well, we would do well to be ready with a rational defense. I like the way that the apostle Peter put it in first Peter chapter three, there he declares sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense and apologia, an apologetic, we have to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Christian, listen, as we present people with the good news about the sacrificial plan by which sinners can be saved, we will inevitably find ourselves face-to-face with those who want to challenge the message of our faith. And it's for this reason that the Apostle Peter encourages every Christian to be ready with a rational defense so that we can respectfully help those we're witnessing to to believe in Jesus and embrace the gospel of grace. With this as the goal, it's important for us to remember then that the effective evangelist, well, we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit who alone can help us to minister to the heart of the person that we're uh, speaking with. And this brings us to our third and final point because listen, Effective evangelism is not only based on scriptural proof, and effective evangelism is not only based on the proclamation of God's sacrificial plan, but effective evangelism is also based on the spiritual power that can only come from our Almighty God. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 24. Here in our text today where we find the Lord Jesus reminding his disciples about the promise of power, and with this as the focus, if you would look with me again there beginning at verse forty eight, it's there where Jesus declares, And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's helping his disciples to understand that they would need to receive spiritual empowerment from on high before they could become effective evangelists. And it's for this reason that he encouraged his disciples to, to wait there in the city of Jerusalem until the day when he would finally send the power that God the Father already promised. Now, this promise of the Father, uh, you know, the, Jesus was uh, uh, basically referring back to a prophecy that we find in Joel chapter 2. It's there where the prophet Joel declares It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit. In those days. Here in this prophecy, uh, we discovered the difference between old men and young men. Uh, the young men see visions while the old men dream dreams. And so uh, I'll let you go ahead and categorize yourself of whether you're seeing visions or dreaming dreams. But also, we see this promise. We see a promise from the Father uh, that points to this day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon those who trust in Jesus Christ. And Jesus elaborated on this promise just before he ascended into heaven. With this as the focus, I want to consider Luke's account uh, of uh, where he elaborates on this day of Jesus' ascension. It's actually found in the book of Acts. If you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Now, As you make your way to the first chapter of Acts, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the true and living God has revealed himself in the scriptures as a triune being. So we believe that there's one God, but we believe that he is a triune being according to his own, uh, according to his own revelation. And we understand then that God is a triune being who eternally exists as the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Please understand, I'm not saying that the father became the son. I'm not saying that the son became the Holy Spirit. That's a heresy known as modalism. No, we believe in a triune being, one God who eternally exists as the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit, that these three coexist equally uh, for all eternity. Well, it's here in Acts chapter 1 where we find all three persons of the triune Godhead taking part in our empowerment. Let's consider Luke's account of this beginning here in Acts chapter 1 verse 4. Here, Luke tells us that they were assembled together with them, and he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said. but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus, he's helping his disciples to understand that they were supposed to wait there in Jerusalem for the day when the Father would send the Holy Spirit so that they could receive the empowerment they needed to become witnesses of the Son. There you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all taking part in our spiritual empowerment. And with that, we have to understand that those who want to become effective evangelists, well, we must receive spiritual power from the Father, which is distributed to us by the indwelling Holy Spirit, all for the sake of being witnesses for the Son. It's in Acts chapter 2, where we go on to learn that it was actually the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was then poured out upon the people of the primitive church. And ever since that day, the Holy Spirit has been providing believers with the spiritual power we need so that we can become effective evangelists who are able to lead the lost to the Lord. And listen, this not only includes the way that he convicts the hearts uh, of those who are still rejecting Jesus Christ. That's right. The Holy Spirit is here to convict and convince and exhort. He's here to rebuke. He's here to challenge the hearts of those who don't yet believe in him. And while that's happening, he's also empowering Christians uh, to go and he's providing us with the divine guidance that we need as we set out to share our faith. And not only that, but Jesus also assured us that the Holy Spirit will enable those who trust in him, uh, he will enable us to give a, a good answer to those who are challenging our faith. I'll remind you, it was back in our study from Luke chapter 12. That's where the Lord declared this. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, Do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Incredible. According to Jesus, when a Christian is being challenged about their testimony, when a Christian is being challenged about their faith, the Lord Jesus assures his, his disciples by helping us to understand that the Holy Spirit who dwells within us will empower us by teaching us how to respond in the moment. The Holy Spirit will guide us and help us to respond to those who challenge our faith. And listen, the same is true for every single born-again believer here today. Do you believe that? Like, do you really believe that you can start witnessing to somebody and if you get stumped and and you don't know how to answer a question that you can just cry out to the Holy Spirit for help and he will give you an answer in that moment. Because if you're struggling to believe that, I I encourage you to remember what Paul wrote in Romans 10 when he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you don't believe this, if you don't believe this is true of you, then start reading the Bible more so that you can have the faith to believe that the Holy Spirit will actually provide you with an answer in the moment as you're evangelizing the lost. And listen, at the same time, I would also remind you of what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's there where he declares, study to show yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study to show yourself approved to God. So that you can become a worker, a witnesser, an evangelist who does not need to be ashamed. Now why would an evangelist be ashamed? Is it probably because we find ourselves in a conversation with an unbeliever and they present us with a question about the Bible that we can't answer because we don't really know what they're talking about and all of a sudden we feel the shame of recognizing that we really don't know how to answer their question? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's why most Christians don't share their faith is because they don't know enough about the Bible to be able to go out and present that information. So you want to be an evangelist who is not ashamed? Study. Study to show yourself approved. Study to to become a worker who does not need to be ashamed because you are able to rightly divide the word of truth. If you want to become an effective evangelist, then we need to know what the word of God says. And I'll remind you that the prophetic word of God was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowered the people who wrote the Bible and gave them every word to place into the word of God. Therefore we need that empowerment. We need the empowerment that comes from the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that comes from the study of his word, he will help us then to respond to every person who challenges our faith. At the same time, I also encourage every Christian to spend time studying apologetics. Apologetics has has to do with the art of giving a defense for why we believe what we believe. And there will be those who want us to give a rational defense for why we believe in Jesus Christ. And knowing that those conversations are going to come around, we got to take the time to understand the most basic arguments, which we're going to hear as we go out to share our faith. As we go share our faith, there will be those who will want to know, well, how can we believe in the Bible? Well, why should we believe in the resurrection? And you know what? There are good answers to those questions. Do you know what they are? Are you able to, you know, uh, pull up, the uh, the arsenal of those answers as you provide them with apologetic reasons for our faith at the same time we can rejoice in knowing that the holy spirit will empower us so that we can answer those who challenge us and therefore we would do well to become those diligent disciples who are taking the time to get equipped so that we can become effective evangelists who are able to lead the lost to the love of the lord Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, it's important for us to realize that the Lord is in fact calling every Christian to become an evangelist. That's right. Evangelism isn't just for that one kooky person that just seems to have some sort of gift of evangelism and so they get to go out and do it and I'll I'll just, you know, avoid it altogether. No, we are all called to be evangelists. I like the way that Jesus put it in Mark chapter 16. It's verse 15 where he directs his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We've been called to go. So let's go. Christ Jesus has commanded every Christian to go into the world with the goal of sharing this good news. And while this is not to suggest that we're all supposed to become world-traveling missionaries, we most certainly have been called to become evangelists who are preaching the gospel wherever we are, And with whomever the Lord leads us to speak with. This reminds me of a time when Brenda and I, we were still courting and we were actually spending time together at a local diner, studying the Bible together. We were spending some time considering our calling and what it means to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. And in the midst of this time together, Brenda decided that she was going to get up and go share the gospel with every single person in that restaurant And I have to confess that I I felt a little uncomfortable as I watched her going from table to table to table in this restaurant telling people about Jesus Christ. I was just like, wow, this is intense. But but I should have expected it because, you know, when I first uh, learned about Brenda, some friends of mine knew her and told me that she had come back from a a mission trip in France. And after getting home, she went door to door in her neighborhood telling people about Jesus. And I just thought, wow, that's incredible faith. And, you know, as a person who loves to go out and, and, and evangelize and, and share my faith in Jesus Christ, I, I finally met someone more intense than me. And I was just kind of like, this is, this is the girl. This is the one. But as I felt that level of, of, of discomfort, as I watched her going from table to te- table, telling people about Jesus Christ, you know, I, I had to come to the realization that, that I'm not God. Who am I? to say the Lord wasn't leading her to go and share her faith in that way at that restaurant in that moment. And in light of her incredible example, I believe that we would all do well to be those believers who are ready in season and out of season. And and what that really means is whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable. We're all looking for a comfortable moment to serve the Lord. We're all looking for a comfortable moment to to share our faith. Let Let me tell you this that comfortable moment will never come. It will never come. Quit waiting for it. We are to share our our faith, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable. And we're to share our faith according to the leading of the Lord at any time, in any place, according to the leading of the Lord. With this as the goal, it's important for us to remember that effective evangelism, it's based on the scriptural proof, which stems from the prophecies that we find in the Bible, which prove that the Bible is the word of God and that Jesus Christ is our risen Messiah. Effective evangelism is also based on the proclamation of God's sacrificial plan, which helps believers to understand the reason for the, uh, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how salvation is received by faith in those necessary measures. And finally, effective evangelism is based on the spiritual power which enables us to address the arguments of those who are still rejecting the redemption of Jesus Christ. And knowing that the Lord is calling every Christian to accomplish the Great Commission, I encourage you to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can become effective evangelists. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so